Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, it's that time of year again. You know what time that is, right? Time to buy stuff people don't, don't need with money we don't have. True? That's pretty much what happens. This is the time of year when everybody gets out their credit cards. And they think, well, I have to buy gifts for somebody, so I'm gonna, I don't have the money, so I'm just going to charge it. And all that does is just delay the agony. Because what happens in January? The bill. And we always find out we spent a lot more than we ever planned for Christmas. Now, I... I, I did a little research because I wondered, you know, how much money is usually on that January credit card bill? Uh, how much money do people carry on their credit cards? And I was shocked. I learned that the average American today is carrying $15,000 in credit card debt. That is a lot. By the way, I am thankful I'm one of those below average families. Yeah. You know, I did a little more research, and I said, you know, is it all because Americans are just compulsive spenders, and they can't get their spending under control? They just have this excessive desire for stuff? And apparently, what they're saying is that one of the reasons for all this credit card debt isn't because people are buying excess stuff. It's simply that the cost of daily life is going up. Did you notice that? These numbers I thought were interesting. Um, in the last 12 years, the average household income has risen 23%. That's good. The bad news is the average cost of medical care has risen 51%. The cost of food has risen 37%. And what's happening is more and more people are putting just daily life, the medications they have to buy, the groceries that they need onto a credit card. And they're finding themselves going deeper and deeper into debt. Now, maybe that's you. And maybe you're somebody who has one of those credit cards that doesn't allow you to sleep at night because you know that bill is getting higher and out of control and you can't figure out what to do to pay it off. Well, this morning, I don't have a message that's going <laughs> to give you six easy answers to pay off your credit card bill and to get out of debt. But I do have a message that will tell you how to get out of a much more significant debt, a debt that you could never pay off, and a debt that each one of us has. It's the debt of our sin to God. If you're new, you need to know that uh, for the month of December, Pastor Jordan on the Spencer campus and he, myself here on the Spirit Lake campus, we are teaching through a, a little section of Leviticus. We're calling this series Christmas from Leviticus, and we're talking about the five different offerings that God's people were given in the Old Testament and told to offer in worship to God. And we're learning how each one of these offerings points forward to Jesus Christ and what He came to do. Last week, we uh, looked at the sin offering, and we learned that the sin offering, it points forward to Jesus Christ came to pay for our sin. This week, 
we're looking at what is called the guilt offering. And the guilt offering teaches us that Jesus Christ came to pay off the debt we owe. The debt we owe to God because of our sin. The debt that we could never, ever pay. So take out your outlines. Uh, follow along with me. The first point is simply this. Sin is debt. Sin is debt. In fact, we don't just find this talked about in the Old Testament in the guilt offering being a form of debt repayment, but Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. For instance, in the Lord's Prayer, He says this. He says, forgive us. He teaches us to pray this way. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That's a very literal translation. But many of us grew up with a translation that says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But see, the more literal way is to say those who are indebted to us because sin has created a debt. Now, we know this just inherently. For instance, when somebody does or says something to you that's sort of mean or irritable, what do we say? They owe me an apology. Why do we use those terms? Because that sin has created a sense of debt to us. You, they owe us something. Incidentally, Jesus uses two parables to talk about sin as debt, and I put those in your outline for you, Matthew 18 and Luke 7. Um, now, as we get into looking at this message, I want to change a couple things around. I printed this outline out before, a little earlier in the week, but I've changed some things in my notes. So this next question, which is what is unintentional sin, I want you to cross that whole thing out. That's it. I see you doing it. Good. But a nice big X through that section. We're going to come back and deal with that a little bit later in the message. I don't want it at this point. Next question, what is the difference between the sin offering and the guilt offering? The sin offering is what we looked at last week. The guilt offering is what we're going to look at this week. And I did a lot of reading on this, and I can tell you the one thing I definitely do agree with. It is what just about every single Bible scholar says. It is very difficult to distinguish the difference between the sin offering and the guilt offering. I read that and I said, you know what, that part I can agree with. Understanding the differences between them and when they were used and when they weren't used and what they were used for. So let me give you a few points here to just describe them. First, the sin offering is taking something that is unholy into a holy place, and you need to have a sin offering for that. The guilt offering is treating something that's holy in an unholy way. So you can think of the sin offering as when you bring something unholy into a holy place and you like sort of pollute the tabernacle with your sin, so you need a sin offering to cover it. The guilt offering is when you take something that is holy and sacred and you treat it in a profane or casual or unholy way. That's when you use the, the difference between the two. And I know that sounds a little difficult, but I wanted to at least include this for those of you who are doing life group tonight as you think through this. Number two, the sin offering is more vertically orientated towards God, not exclusively, because it also can be about touching other people. 
And the guilt offering is more vertically and horizontally orientated, more horizontally, because it concerns our relationship with God and others. Now, these are not exclusive, one or the other. It says one leans more one way and one leans more the other way. Number three, the sin offering had six options for you. You remember that last week? Depending on your financial status. If you were a, a, a priest and you sinned, you had the expensive offering of a, of a bull. But if you were somebody in destitute poverty, you just had a, enough flour for a loaf of bread for the sin offering. So it was sort of a graduated one. The guilt offering, you only have one option, a male sheep. doesn't matter if you're rich. doesn't matter if you're poor. Number four. The sin offering could be offered for the collective sin of a nation. We saw that last week. The guilt offering can only be offered by an individual for their individual sin. Now, as we get into looking at the guilt offering and explaining it to you, this is what I like to call it. I call it the stealing offering. That's really what it is. It's the offering for when you steal. You could either steal from God or you can steal from others. Anytime you take anything that isn't rightfully yours or you use your position to oppress others, you need to offer a guilt offering. So let's go ahead and look at this. It begins by stealing, with, stealing from God. And the first thing we learn is this offering is needed when somebody unintentionally steals from God. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram, that is a male lamb, by the way, without blemish, out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing. And shall add a fifth to it, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. Now, let's go work our way through this. First of all, he says, if anyone commits a breach of faith. What is a breach of faith? It means if anyone breaks faith. Now, what would this look like? Think about this in a, just a purely human sense. Say you're a husband, you promised your wife you would be home uh, by 5 o'clock for dinner, uh, but you don't come home for dinner until 7.30. And she says, well, why didn't you at least give me a call, let me know, you know that you weren't coming? And he says, I just didn't want to do it. I went to the gym for two and a half hours, we hung out with the guys, lifted some weights, you know, I just figured I'd come home when I want to. Is she going to be happy? No, because you broke your promise to her. You committed a breach of faith to her. You should have at least called. Or when there's infidelity in a marital relationship, what does that create? A breach of faith, a breakdown in the relationship. There's a broken trust. So a breach of faith is breaking trust in a relationship. And what he's saying is this can happen between us and God. We can break down that trust of that relationship. And it can happen when you take some of God's stuff and you take it even unintentionally. Now, 
what would it look like to take God's stuff unintentionally? Well, here's an example. Uh, eating food dedicated to God. I'm just going to give a purely hypothetical situation. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the grain offering. We learned that people brought a bread that they made for the grain offering. So I can picture the situation. Some people have brought some loaves of bread that they have baked, and they've dedicated it to God. It is for the exclusive use of the priest. It's there in the tabernacle. And in the busyness of everything going on, a guy comes in and he offers a fellowship offering. We learned about the fellowship offerings a couple weeks ago. That's a big party. Celebrating God's goodness is what that one is for. So he offers the, the fellowship offerings. He sees the bread and thinks it's okay to be taken. He takes the bread to the fellowship offering, slices it into pieces, and has a roast beef sandwich with the bull that he has just offered from the herd. And the priest goes, hey, I had some bread over there. Uh, I, I, where did it go? And the guy's like, um, it was good. Uh, it goes great with beef. I ate like a roast beef sandwich out of it. I didn't mean to take it. I took it unintentionally. Now, most of us would think, okay, well, oh, come on, just blow that off. But that could be a hypothetical situation where he unintentionally took something that was God's, and he is guilty before God for doing that. I'll give you another example. Shortchanging God in tithes and offerings. For instance, we see this in Malachi. It says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, in Malachi, this could be intentional robbery in the sense of intentionally keeping back the tithes, but it could also be unintentional keeping back of the tithes. That would be considering stealing God's stuff. And like, maybe this has happened to you. Two people write checks from the checkbook, and like the husband thinks that the wife is writing the offering tithe check, and the wife thinks the husband is writing the offering tithe check, and in the busyness of life, you don't get a chance to go back and sort of cycle through the register for about a month. When you go to reconcile it with your statement, you realize, you know, we haven't uh, actually uh, been giving the offering at all. I know for us today, when we think about it that way, we're like, well, that would, that's stealing from God. Well, in the Old Testament, it was a little different. Their tithes were actually like their taxes. Because remember, they were a theocratic society. God was their government. So you try not paying your taxes, and you tell me, does the government think we're stealing? Yeah, right. And so, you know, these, here's a situation where they could have been unintentionally stealing from God. What are they to do to make this right? This is where the guilt offering comes in. And here's what I want you to notice. There are two parts to making this right. The first thing is they obviously have to restore what they took. But they don't just restore it. They restore what they took plus 20%. Now, this is interesting. Why would you have to give an extra 20% even if you took what you took unintentionally? Did you ever think about that? And here's what I think. I think the reason God had them give an extra 20% is because it shows true repentance. And it's a good step towards good 
restoration. Let me put it in a contemporary uh, setting. Say you're working with a friend, and you're working on helping to build his barn. And you're at his house, and you spend the day working, and he has just bought one of those new DeWalt tool bags they sell at Baumgars, you know. has like six attachments in it, all 18-volt plug-ins, you know. He just, this thing is his pride and joy, you know. It's got all kinds of excitement about this. And they're using the circular saw and all kinds of stuff as you're building the barn. And at the end of the day, as things get put back, you unintentionally grab that big bag of tools that's worth a couple hundred dollars and you put it in the back of your pickup. And you know how you throw everything in the back of your pickup and things get covered up? You go home and you don't think anything about it. And like about a month later, you go digging through the back of your pickup and you realize that you have this guy's like couple hundred dollar bag worth of brand new power tools. And all month, all month long, he has been scouring his house looking for these power tools, thinking he must have put them somewhere. And you're like, oh, man, I took them unintentionally. Now, do you just bring them back and say, hey, I'm sorry, or do you bring them back and maybe stop by Starbucks and grab a gift card and maybe get them a $10 or $20 gift card and say, hey, I am sorry. I took this completely unintentionally. I want to restore this, but hey, this is a little something extra just to let you know I'm totally sorry about that. Which one do you think works better? I'd go with the Starbucks gift card, right? This is the same idea. You put a little something extra in there to show true repentance. And of course, by the way, he's not just guilty in the relational side horizontally, but he's still guilty before God. So what is there to offer? There is a male sheep. Confess your sin to God and sacrifice a male sheep to atone for and cover your sin. So that's the first time the guilt offering is used, unintentional stealing from God. Second thing we learn is it's also used, at least a form of it, in potential stealing from God. This is interesting. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, and then he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. And he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he has made unintentionally. And he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. And he has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. Now, what does this phrase, he did not know it, mean? What this is saying is somebody who thinks he may have sinned against God, may have taken something that doesn't belong to him, but he is not sure about it. So he goes to bed at night, and he is plagued with a guilty conscience. This is a guy, for instance, who uh, would have been in the tabernacle, and he was cutting up some bread, and he's wondering, no, did I take the priest's bread that was dedicated to God or not? And nobody's accused me of it. I don't know. I can't figure it out. But I go to bed at night, and I am wondering if I have sinned against God or not. I am just not sure. What do you do to relieve your guilty conscience? It says, offer the, the ram before God and be relieved of that. Now, interestingly, there's, no, there's nothing to restore because he's not sure what he took. But here's the point where it gets really interesting and in how do we apply this. Do you guys ever have that time 
where you wonder if you did something sinful and you're not really sure? You wonder if you did something wrong or you wonder, is it just my conscience that's just saying that or did I actually mess up and hurt somebody or screw up on something? What this is telling us is if you feel guilty, act like you're guilty and go out of your way to make it right. Let me say this again. If you feel guilty, act like you're guilty and go out of your way to make it right. Don't just keep trying to push it away from your mind. Do something about it. I'll give you an example. Uh, earlier in the fall, I uh, went up to, to Walmart. My mind was just consumed with a bunch of stuff. I had just been in a meeting and had a lot of stuff in my mind going along. And uh, a friend from church happened to be pop into the same aisle that I was working in. And I was over here looking at Band-Aids and all kinds of stuff. And he says, hey, how you doing, Kurt? And I, and I just said, oh, hi, and was real short and went back to it. And, and my, my kids have told me, my wife has told me that when I get in the zone... You know, that I can be sort of short and not real relational, and, and I can come across sort of harsh. And I, I left Walmart, and I started thinking to myself, you know, I was in the zone. I was sort of short, uh, maybe uh, sort of rude. Oh, I'm just thinking about it that way. I probably didn't do anything wrong. But that kept plaguing my conscience, plaguing my mind. And so, you know, I got in the city and just wrote a brief note. I said, hey, I just want you to know I had a bunch of stuff on my mind. It didn't mean to come across short. If I came across short or rude to you in any way, it wasn't intended. Just, just send a brief note. And the guy wrote back. He's like, hey, no big deal. I didn't, no, no, didn't take it wrong at all. But see, the thing is, if I hadn't done that, what would continue to come up in my mind weeks and months later? I wonder if I was rude. I wonder if I was offensive. What this is saying here is, like I said, if you may be guilty, act like you're guilty and go out of your way to make things right. So, first thing we have learned is we look at the guilt offering. We, rest- we have a debt of sin to pay with God, but we also have to restore anything we've taken to others. But we don't just restore what we've taken we give a little something extra with it, even if it was unintentional. Second thing we learned is when we have a guilty conscience, we may have been rude or, uh, or done something unintentionally wrong, we go out of our way to make it right. Now let's look at stealing from people. This is going to get very interesting. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it and swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. And if he has sinned and he's realized his guilt... And he will restore what he took by robbery or what he's got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which we has sworn falsely. He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it, that's the 20%, and shall give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest 
as his compensation to the Lord, a ram, that is a male, male sheep, without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that anyone may do, and thereby become guilty. I told you it's going to get interesting here. Last week, when I was uh, teaching on the sin offering, one of the things I said is that there is no offering for in there is no offering for intentional sin. There's only an offering for unintentional sin. Incidentally, uh, that's what I was taught when I, when I grew up. Many of you were taught that as well. This is what many of the popular writers uh, on the Old Testament will teach you, that there is no offering for intentional sin. They say it's high-handed sin. But when you read Leviticus chapter 6, you run into a problem. The things that we just read are very hard to do unintentionally, aren't they? Maybe a better way to say it is there is no sin offering for unintentional. There is no sin offering for intentional sin. But there is an offering for intentional sin. It's the guilt offering that we just read about. So, think about this. How could you rob people, deceive people, oppress people, lie to people, and then swear to God falsely about the whole thing and do it unintentionally? This is something you actually chose to do. But what you notice here is when people all of a sudden realize they're guilty and they repent of their sin and they confess it to God, they could bring the guilt offering and have that sin atoned for. Numbers chapter 5, which sort of repeats the guilt offering. And by the way, this is something that you do not have in your outline. This is something I put in later. So if you're taking notes, write down Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. I have it on the screen for you. It recounts the... the uh, the guilt offering. It says, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord. Notice it says any of those sins. And that person realizes his guilt. He shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. And then it goes on and says, in addition to the ram of atonement, which, is atone which atonement is made for him. Now, what about somebody who chooses to not, uh, they may have done an intentional sin, but they don't choose to confess that sin. They don't want to admit that sin and own up to that sin. That is called officially high-handed sin. This is not in your outlines, but you may want to write it down. Numbers 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. High hand means unrepentant. Now let's go ahead and analyze this text a little bit more. What we learned at the very beginning is this. It says, anyone who commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor 
And what is interesting here is this. When you choose to steal from people, when you choose to oppress people and be dishonest with people or to manipulate people, you are not just breaking faith with that person. You are breaking down your relationship with God. Isn't that true? Whoever commits a breach of faith against the Lord by doing what? Deceiving his neighbor. So cheating and oppressing people hurts our relationship with God, not just with people. How do we steal from people? Let me just run through this a little bit. By not returning a deposit or security. For instance, maybe this means um, a deposit. Maybe you're somebody who rents a piece of property and you take a one-month security deposit and the guy who is in the apartment moves out. And you look at it and you say, well, it's relatively clean, but I'm going to have to do a, a little bit of cleanup at the end. And so you said, I'm not giving you your security deposit back. And the guy says, wait, I left it in really great condition. I just don't think it was good enough. And you're sort of using your position of power to oppress them, to like get money out of them. And they leave, but they don't have a good feeling in their, a good taste in their mouth about you because they feel that you sort of shortchanged them even though you could. Or maybe uh, somebody who's given you something for security. Take, for instance, maybe you have a... a your grandmother's silver uh, china and forks and knives, and you have it in a box, and you're going to be going south for the winter, and you don't want to leave it in an empty house, so you ask your neighbor if you could leave it with them. And you get it back when you come back in the spring, and you look at it, and you, you set out the place settings, and you're like, I only count 11. But there was 12. I know there was 12. There's always been 12. And so you go to your neighbor, and you say, well, you took one. He says, well, I didn't. There must have been one gone when you gave it to me. And the person is using their position to sort of steal from you. Of course, there's robbery. Robbery is just simply taking stuff that isn't yours. Extortion or oppression, which is using your position of authority to manipulate people. Like maybe somebody is desperate for a job, and they'll work for anything because they're desperate for money. So you use your position to make them work hard for absolutely nothing is a form of oppression. Finding something that's lost and lying about it, like an iPod. You know how that goes. You found the iPod and you don't try real hard to get it back to its owner because you know if nobody finds it, it's going to be yours. And then you can compound all of these by swearing falsely, he said. Now, what is swearing falsely? It's simply this. You know, I swear to God I didn't take your fill in the blank. That's swearing falsely. Now, what is so amazing to me is this. These are serious sins, but they're still forgiven in the Old Testament. They're still forgiven by the guilt offering when someone repents of their sin. And what do they do? They have to repent of their sin. They have to confess it to God and here's what they do. They have to return what was taken plus 20%. Remember that Starbucks gift card or the rough equivalent? You never just give back what you took, whether it was unintentional or intentional. You give back what you took plus a little something 
extra is a way of trying to restore that relationship. Notice it says, when you are to return these things. It says, return what was taken on the day that guilt is realized. How does this work? Sometimes we're pretty good at suppressing the guilt of our conscience, aren't we? And then you're in the middle of the night, you're thinking about something, and you realize, you know, I did what was wrong. And if we keep ignoring it, and we say, well, I'll just restore it uh, like next week, or I'll restore it next month, what happens? Your conscience gets dull, and you're less likely to do it. It says here, we are to return what was taken on the day that guilt is realized, right away. In fact, Jesus said the same thing, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Be reconciled with people first. And of course, lastly, offer a male sheep as a sacrifice for sin. Now let me put this together. How does the guilt offering point us to Christ and to Christmas? Well, I want to begin by Isaiah 53. If you want to read some Old Testament prophecy about Jesus Christ that's really explicit about what He came to do, read Isaiah 53 this year. And I want to pull out verse 10 because it says this, talking about Jesus, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What this literally says is that Jesus came to be our guilt offering. Jesus came to be that unblemished male sheep that had to be offered for any time people stole stuff or took anything that wasn't theirs, whether unintentionally or intentionally. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53 says this, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus came to bear our guilt and to make us righteous gets more interesting. You go to the New Testament. You may, probably you remember this one. John the Baptist said this when he saw Jesus in John 1. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That word sin there literally is the guilt of sin. Isn't this interesting? How this guilt offering is fulfilled by Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the guilt of the world. He came to be our guilt offering. So Jesus came so we no longer need to pay for the debt of our sin. Paul says the exact same thing, that Jesus came to be our guilt offering, but he says it in a little different way. He says in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, And you, you were dead in your trespasses, 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made alive together, made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by what? By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of our guilt was nailed to it with him. And he paid for it. But even more explicitly, in Jesus' final words on the cross, what does he say? When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word, it is finished in English, is an English translation of the Greek word tetelestai. The Greek word testelestai means paid in full. It is the word that was stamped across the front of a bill when it was finally paid. It was stamped across the front of a debt when it was finally finished. Paid in full. Smack right there. But the debt is our sin, and it was written, paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those were his final words. Jesus came to be our guilt offering, to take us out of the debt of sin that we owe to God, a debt we could never, ever pay. But here's where it gets interesting. Remember, the guilt offering had two pieces to it. It wasn't just the unblemished male sheep to pay the debt to God. But it also meant that we had to restore the broken relationship and what we took to others and then give a little something extra in good faith to restore that relationship. Jesus came to be the lamb, but we still have to restore the relationship with other people when it breaks down. Let me give you some points to remember. The first one I'd like to cross out, by the way, I'd like to rephrase it. Number one, there is no sin offering for intentional sin, but there is a guilt offering for intentional sins of which you repent. There is no sin offering for intentional sin, but there is a guilt offering. Number two, we learn this. When my sin leads me to take something that isn't rightfully mine, either from God or people, repentance is not just seeking God's forgiveness. It means restoring what I took plus something extra. It always means restoring what I took plus something extra. It's the Starbucks gift card that goes back with what you took. Number three, we also learned that if my, guilty, or if my conscience feels guilty of sin, even if I'm not sure if I committed sin, I go out of my way to make potential sin right. If my conscience feels guilty of sin, even if I'm not sure if I've committed that sin, go out of my way to make the potential sin right. Number four, when I steal from people, I am not just breaking my relationship with a person. I am breaking my relationship with God. Remember that. Number five, when I realize my sin against someone, I must make it right that day, not weeks, not months, not years later. And number six, in both the Old and the New Testaments, getting right with God is more than Jesus as our sacrifice for sin. 
it also means getting right with others. This week, as we go into Christmas season, you and I know there'll be times when we hurt one of our relatives by something we say. There'll be times when our relatives hurt us, and there'll be some relational breakdowns. What do we do? Do we just go to God in prayer and ask for forgiveness of our sins and ask God to atone for our guilt, which He certainly has in Jesus? Yeah, we do that. But we also go out of our way to restore that relationship on a horizontal level with other people. And if we've taken anything or oppressed somebody, we go out of our way to make it right by giving back what we took plus something extra. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.